Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the Typology Podcast. I'm Ian Morgan Cron, and uh, I am so glad to be on the show this week. And, of course, my my good friend, producer, engineer, my spiritual guide, <laughs> Anthony Skinner, right here in the, the studio with me. Anthony, you good? Hey, Ian, it's good to have you back. Yeah, man, it's good to be back. You were where last week? I was in Boulder, Colorado for Boulder, five days. Colorado. All right. Yeah, it was great. It was yep. great. I smoked a lot of pot, All ate right. a lot of edibles. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a wonderful time. I was up in the mountains in this place called Chautauqua mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in a cabin up on the up on a mountain. Ooh. Just Oh, man, it was so beautiful. It was great to be out of the humidity of Nashville. But also, you know, it was five days of just kind of, you know, kind of doing some goal setting and kind of like also doing some personal work and, you know, a little bit of take an inventory and stock of my life and what what the heck do I want to do and who do I want to be and how do I get there stuff it was it was intense but it was good love it what'd you come away with I need a complete personality and soul <laughs> overhaul I need a makeover man I, I'm in I'm in just you know I'm in the freaking crisis care unit when it comes to <laughs> real, real quick tell us a little bit about how you unplugged because you you did something kind of unique oh yeah I didn't take my smartphone but I didn't take my smartphone because I lost it at a gig in Orlando. <laughs> so I had a backup phone that was on forward calls. And, but I have to say, like, it was like a contemplative experience. It's like, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm beginning to remember words that I couldn't get out of my head. And I, you know, wow. it's like I became more uh, aware of things, you mm-hmm. know, like. And I got bored, which was good. Boredom you know? is good. Boredom. Yeah. It's like, man, it's all like kinds the mother of, of invention, right? Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. Song ideas came out and book ideas. And if I, if I could only execute on that stuff, it'd be, it'd be good. But, <laughs> you know. Hey, I'm excited about today's show. Yeah, tell us about our guest. Oh, man. We have Scott Harrison with us today. And for those of you who don't know Scott, you are going to have a, a, a treat. Um, let me tell you a little bit about him. So Scott, I, we, we, he and I have met once before in, in, in uh, Manhattan. And uh, he spent... Check this out. He's an eight on the Enneagram with a seven wing, eight, seven. We're going to learn about that particular combination, mm-hmm. which is something else. It's a force of nature. Scott spent almost 10 years as a, as a nightclub promoter in New York City. And by the way, that's a Scott, you're, you're on the line right now. So, you, you know, that's about as eight a, a job <laughs> as I can think of. Uh, you know, uh, maybe you could have been a bouncer. Were you a bouncer as well? No, no. Oh no! no. Was, you ran the bouncer. It was. Uh, it, it was kind of like the guy in the DJ booth spraying the champagne over the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll talk about lust and excess in a minute. The love for excess. <laughs> Just a moment, but this is a deep cat, man, because uh, he, he worked as a club promoter for like ten years, and then. He had this kind of moment where he's like, "Like, what the heck am I doing with my life? And what would my life be like if it were completely the opposite of the way I'm living now? Is that mm. fair to say, That's Scott? That's exactly right. Yeah. So 
what does he do? He he goes as a volunteer on a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia as a volunteer photojournalist. Wow. Now that's that's a big decision. Eights, man, they love to make big life decisions and then just go for it. I mean, you're so you're out of our playbook, buddy. You're 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 a poster child right here. It's great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so now, though, he goes off, Scott goes off, and he founds the nonprofit organization, which many of you, I'm sure, have heard of, Charity Water. And that was back in 2006. And he just invested the energy that so many ha- eights have for when they just direct it in, the, in a good way. It's fantastic. And he brought all of his attention to the global water crisis. And for if you didn't know this, Anthony, 663 million people live in the world what? without clean water. Did you know that? Oh, my word, no. That's intense, right? That's awful. So he created these public installations and innovative online fundraising wow. platforms to get you know people to be aware of it. And in 11 years, check this out, man, with the help of more than a million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised more than $300 million dollars. Right and funded over twenty eight thousand water projects in twenty six countries. So, by the way, everybody, you need to go and uh, and check out uh, their website, man, which is charitywater.org. And uh, I just want to encourage people to participate in in that movement because it's important. It's really important. He was recently recognized in Fortune Magazine's forty under forty list. Well, that's that's pretty great. The Forbes Magazine Impact Thirty list, and was recently number ten in uh, Fast Company's One Hundred Most Creative People in Business issue, and he's currently a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. I wish I was young enough to be a young global leader. I'm not even a young Franklin, Tennessee leader. That's <laughs> fairly pathetic. So anyway, Scott, welcome to Typology. <laughs> Thanks for having me in. It's good to uh, hang out. Yeah, it's nice to uh, maybe have a few more minutes than the last time, which was down in, was it Battery? It wasn't Battery Park. It was yeah, Tribeca, Tribeca to, Battery Park. It was yeah. in Tribeca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it was. It was, it was a wonderful, beautiful day outside. I remember that. And uh, hanging out with David Gunker and you and uh, among other mutual friends. Um, so let me, let, me, let me begin this way. You are an eight. The, for those of you who are new to the Enneagram and listening, um, they are called the Challengers. Uh, sometimes they're called the boss. Uh, eights are um, typically people who are real forces of, of nature in the world. They are people who are larger than life. In fact, what I just described, somebody who was a club owner and living a, a life of, Scott, is excess a good way to put it? Uh, debauchery, excess, sure. <laughs> Hedonism. Can you... <laughs> You were all in, huh? Sycophant. You know, there's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> and big ones at that. So, yeah, I mean, okay, lust have is a, actually... Okay, how about loser? <laughs> <laughs> well, in a big way, then. If you're going to be a loser, uh, it sounds Go like big. we have a lot in common. I went through a fairly significant period of my life where excess was the uh, the pattern. Um, so, lust is the deadly center passion of eights and that doesn't necessarily mean in the sexual sense of the word although i must say that that eights have a sort of a hunger for excess in every area of life and it's just for those of you who don't know it's a lust for intensity you know what i mean it's like they just want immediate engagement with other people like they walk in a room it's like where's the engagement where's the juice i want to go right to where the energy is and i want to either challenge it or engage it or or just feed on it is that scott am i ringing a bell for you yeah that's, that sounds too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so 
you know, like a friend of mine who's an eight said, you know, all my life I, I kept hearing the word too, T-double-O. I was too much. I was too loud. I was too fast. I was too this. I was too big. I was too, you know, it was just I was too intense. I was too over the top. I, everything I did, I, you know, it was like anything worth doing was worth overdoing. You're nodding I'm your nodding head. My head. <laughs> yeah, man. So I, I love eights um, because... Eights and fours are probably the two most misunderstood numbers on the Enneagram. Mm. And so we actually often get along because we sort of share that sense of, well, I don't know if people really get me. Have you had that experience in your life? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people just find us foreign, <laughs> or at least, you know, find me foreign. The, you know, sometimes the intensity, sometimes just the you know, certainly the radical change. I mean, in in some ways that seems so natural to me. The only other thing to do if you're out doing drugs all night, addicted to pornography, smoking, gambling, drinking, would be to quit all of that and go live in the poorest country in the world as a photojournalist. Yes. I mean, that's that's just completely natural. Like, what, what else would you do? And I think, you know, sometimes parts of my story are even... You know, some of the ideas in Charity Water, the, the extremity of those ideas have, have mystified people. You know, why would you ever, why would you do that? Uh, mm-hmm. Why would you go so far? I mean, you didn't even know that that was going to work. This is very eight stuff. And uh, because number, number one, eights are very concerned with justice. Super concerned. They're very concerned with standing up for the underdog. They love to defend the defenseless, to be the voice of the voiceless. It gives them great satisfaction mm-hmm. to sort of stand in, stand in the line of fire for people who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, to be honest, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a projection of the eight's own vulnerability. Uh, it's, proje- it's sort of uh, protecting the vulnerable as, a, as maybe a metaphor. I'm not saying this in great psychological language, but... Uh, protecting their own vulnerability and a projection uh, for somebody else. And uh, so, yeah, let's talk about vulnerability for a minute because uh, that's in many ways what, what eights are motivated to hide is vulnerability and innocence in themselves. Hmm. You know, I think uh, it, it's interesting because when you say vulnerability, I think of transparency, which mm-hmm. uh is it's a core value of the organization. Um, it, it's something that has often surprised people about me. Is just how much I am willing to tell, how how I'm willing to go there, you know, to to talk about um, the the absolute abject moral depravity and darkness, you know, and, and the specific details of you know going to bed at twelve o'clock after seven hours of cocaine or. You know the the like all the stuff that that just people all the stuff that you just don't talk about. Um, I have loved to talk about. That's just been uh, so natural to me, and and um, I think that's led to that value being passed on to Charity Water. So people have been so surprised at the willingness of Charity Water to share failures to to tell people stuff that a charity just isn't supposed to tell people. Um, when you know when we screw up, or, you know, publishing open letters, and there's so many of these examples that um, that I could think of over the couple of years. You know, vulnerability. Um, 
I, 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 I almost don't even know what to do with that word. <laughs> uh, you know, being, I guess what I try and put that into is the transparent category, which is just, I just say everything. And, but, but I'm sure at times I am not going there with my true feelings. You know, that transparency for me is almost a mask for true vulnerability where mm-hmm. I can tick the box, but I haven't really ticked the box. Yeah, I was going to say transparency is, I think, a different, it's, a, it's a, actually a really good nuanced uh, conversation that I've never had with someone before. But I think some of the things you're describing to people uh, really just feels like uh, discussing your intensity. Like, it's like, well, I did all this Coke and I did all this drinking and I had all this sex or I was, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's actually fairly safe because it's uh, also a way of people like, oh, this guy's intense. And so it actually becomes a wall against the vulnerability that the transparency is uh, almost giving a counterfeit experience of the vulnerability. Does that make sense? It does. And I think uh, there are are moments, though, that I can really think about where I've been. The vulnerability has come really easy for me. You know, moments of burnout, moments of just defeat or failure where I've almost surprised myself at my willingness of letting strangers in on that. Mm -hmm. Even though it makes Mm -hmm. me look bad, you know, even though it really Mm -hmm. makes me look uh, weak or inferior uh, on the surface, Right. And yes. and perhaps I know just from, you know, leading an organization and, you know, probably making a thousand speech speeches now and having, you know, having worked with different audiences. I think I know that um, that that can really be in some ways a superpower that can really uh, establish a meaningful connection to yes. the audience. And, you know, Brene Brown is a friend and, you know, I've I've. um, she's come in and spoken here and you know I really believe what she says about the power of vulnerability when it's true so in some ways perhaps I've exploited that in in my leadership of the organization or in in my interactions with the public or with different audiences um, because I know that it it works you know if I'm being, being really honest you know I start every speech these days with you know walking on stage and say when I was four years old, my mother almost died. You know, and I put people right into one of the most painful moments of my life when there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in my house and my mom almost died and my dad and I got sick and my family just fell apart and things were never the same again. And I think I know that, that establishing that connection immediately with people and, and coming at them, you know, not starting and saying, hey, I started a charity called Charity Water, and let me tell you about the global water crisis. Let me, no, let me tell you about this little child who lost everything um, because a tragedy happened in the family, and that shaped and defined the rest of my life. Um, you know, one thing I really have learned over, what, now 12 years of fundraising is that I, I really believe people don't, give to peop- people don't give to causes, they give to people. And unless you can establish that connection with people, um, unless they can understand who you are and what makes you tick and the values that you believe in and try and live by, they're, they're not going to engage in a meaningful way or in a radical way or in a, in a sacrificial way. So I, I think I, vulnerability is a tool that I've, I've used and I use often, um, whether it's in front of 10,000 people or whether it's in front of one person. Um, mm-hmm. I've learned to be, you know, I'm married to a four, so I've learned to be very vulnerable with, with my wife. Uh, and I, I think, you know, you'd probably have to ask her, but. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you just said something that I think is, uh, 
a lot of eights would say, which is um, when uh, you confuse vulnerability with weakness. Uh, and a lot of eights do that. In fact, most eights do, right? They, they, For example, if you were to spontaneously reveal things about yourself that you hadn't planned, or let's say you cried uh, in public in a way that, that came up on you and you did not plan it, or you it just snuck up on you, afterwards you... Well, let me ask you this. Would you be almost angry at yourself because that moment of vulnerability felt like weakness, not strength? No. It happens all the time. It does. I'm, I'm, I think I'm proud of it and know that that would um, – that the authenticity was important to whoever might have seen me in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be just reflective of having done some work, you know. Uh, would you have said that at 20? No. 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 no, I would have been much more closed. I was also living a very different lifestyle at 20. <laughs> yeah, well, all of us have. And yeah. hopefully we're not at 40, living the same life. That would be pathetic. Uh, I, I and, don't look at vulnerability as weakness, though. I, I, I actually look at it as strength. And you know, when, when used appropriately, um, as, as very powerful. I've, I've seen, I've seen people be vulnerable with me and take me from a place of disinterest or cynicism or, you know, I just can't wait for this meeting to be over to all in, you know, to, to taking me from a, you know, a one on a zero to 10 interest level to an 11 by, by dropping, you know, by letting me into their soul, by letting me into their thinking. So I've been, the, the best fundraisers that I've ever worked with here at Charity Water have been the most vulnerable, the most willing to go there. And it's funny, I just interviewed a fundraiser today, and that's one of the things that I look for. You know, tell me about your, your family, your story. What was it like growing up? You know, I'm, I'm really interested in when people start, where people start their stories, with me do they go is it just hey i went to college and i got a degree and this is my first job and this is my second job i'm i'm disinterested in that person if it's just surface level if it's just kind of going through the motions and the power as a as a as a fundraiser specifically when it comes to our business is in immediately making that connection with people letting them behind the scenes and then all the other stuff comes later yeah. So what you described too is very eight, which is that even, you almost said, actually said the, uh, the, the phrase, and I said it earlier, which is immediate engagement and connection. It's like with the environment and with people, it's like, I want it the moment I can get it. Uh, just man, I just want to, I want all of that. It's that lust for intensity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I just want to go there and it's different than a four. You know what I mean? Like the four wants to go there wants to go to the deepest place possible as fast as possible, but for different reasons. Right. And, um, so what's that like in your marriage? Is that true? Like you're married to a four? Like, what's that like? Um, my wife's very deep. You know, we worked together for nine years. So she was actually the second employee, which is a whole long story, um, of how that evolved. Um, you know, just, just one way I guess to describe that relationship was I, I'm, I'm very oblivious you know I'm, I don't feel like I'm often very self-aware I'm not naturally self-aware uh, I'm not often aware of how you know the things I say or do will have an oversized uh, reaction from others or influence on others so when when Vic and I met you know she actually 
really liked me when she was working with me and, and would, would tell you that she fell in love with me. I had no idea. I mean, I'm working alongside someone 80 <laughs> hours a week and my head just wasn't there. Uh, that, that part of my life was really shut down. I'm trying to build an organization. I've got this vision to end the world water crisis in my lifetime. I then stumble upon a bigger vision to reinvent charity and, and create a global movement of compassion and redemptive radical generosity and get the cynics and the skeptics to come back to the table of giving. So I was, I was busy and focused and completely oblivious to someone that I'm sitting next to at an office actually had meaningful feelings for me. But then, and, and again, maybe this is an eight thing, when the switch flipped, we got married like a couple months later. <laughs> it was just, the whole thing was just, oh, wow. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, I actually have feelings for you too. And well, let's not waste any time here. Right. <clears throat> that is very eight, man. It's all in. There's no such, it's either, you know, it's go big or go home. It's, it's one or the other. It's not like, well, let's just kind of like, you know, work our way there, see how it goes and, you know, give it a year. It's like, nope, that's it. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the original question, how we, how we work together, how we, you know, we talk about things. Um, I think we're pretty good at communicating. Uh, there's, it doesn't feel we're we're both peacemakers. We both default to making the peace with each other. Really, we don't like to go to bed angry. We we resolve the tensions. You know, even if there is, um, if there is a fight, and I can kind of think of you know two or three fights over eight years, almost nine years of marriage. You know, that would stand out, but they happen immediately, and they don't simmer, and they're resolved within twenty four hours. You know, it's not a we don't leave things unsaid. Yeah, the, the, or the timeline on that is, is shortened, right? We might leave things unsaid right. for hours, not days or weeks. It's just, you know, both of us just need to get it off of our chest and say it and have the conflict and agree or disagree or once, and, and typically one of us will back down. It's, 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 I, I actually can't think of a scenario where both of us refuse to back down. We, we both would hold the relationship and, and peace above the conflict, the, the continued conflict. Okay, so that's interesting because a lot of times, well, three sevens and eights are the three most aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. And eights would be totally the most aggressive number on the Enneagram. You have more energy than any other number on the Enneagram, more stamina than any other number. You'll work yourself to sickness, physical. And I took 98 airplanes in a single year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was, yeah. I was just well, this- upset that I couldn't get to 100. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, United Airlines is every time you get to the gate, they're like putting you on a pallet and walking you on the airplane while singing thank you songs. They uh, Delta sent a Porsche for me once. <laughs> they did. Yeah. They picked me up at Seattle Airport in a Porsche and moved me to my next flight. And and by the way, this is all coach. Okay, we've we've never, you know, we we raised a third of a billion dollars. We've never bought a business class ticket for myself or anyone else. Um, at Charity Water. So this is, this is just a lot of flying, <laughs> not, uh, not spending. I, it's important to say these days, uh, there's so many people that, that think uh, we get into these things for the wrong businesses, you know, to enrich, wrong reasons to enrich ourselves or, you know, manipulate the public. Yeah. But that's just an example that um, I, I actually wish that I had figured out how to take two more flights that year. 
because 100 has a better ring to it than 98. Oh, it totally does. But by way of transparency, as a four who loves aesthetics and pampering, I think I totally, if I was on like Cathay Pacific, I would be in one of those $20,000 cabins. <laughs> you know, like drinking. Well, of course, now it would be like some sort of apple fizzy drink. But, I, I you know, like smoking a cigar and like first class where listen, they would let you actually because you have so many listen, miles. Listen, Ian, you know, if like, you want to send me to Singapore in first, I'm not, I'm not turning it down. You or anyone else. But I'm just not going to use our donor money for any of that. <laughs> Good man. Good man. I appreciate that. So three sevens and eights, most aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. Fours, fives, and nines are, so that's your stance is the aggressive stance, which means you go right at people. It's like whew, right at them. Fours, fives, and nines. And so for example, in conflict, typically withdraw. Uh, they typically go quiet. They pull away, you know, uh, and a, a lot of times fours will go into this sort of darker space uh, and but not engage, you know, like the eight would have to be walking around the house following the four to get them to like to the point of, OK, let's argue. But that does not sound no. like the dynamics. No, and I actually don't know of uh, Vic's wing, but no, she she'll give it right back to me. I bet she's a three wing. I don't know that, obviously, but a five would be probably even more of a withdrawal. Uh, position uh, for a for a four, so I think that's healthy. Actually, let me ask you a question, just to kind of just sort of dig at some. What is it in your life that you fear the most? Hmm. I think at this point, insignificance comes to mind. Mm. Hmm. And and uh, not having my my work or life relationship parenting not having that matter, mm. uh, wasting the gifts and the experiences led up to this point and uh, you know squandering them somehow, getting sidetracked, burning out, not finishing well. By the way, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you don't. <laughs> in fact, that's probably the first well, time I've thought about that in, in years. <laughs> that's great. Well, I mean, that's great because I think you admitted this a few moments ago, which is that you are not naturally self-reflective. Not at all. Not at all. And those, Your those attention questions, is very externally. Those questions, you know, often I almost don't even know how to answer because I just haven't spent any time thinking about them. But the, yeah, mm-hmm. as you say, the external questions, it'd be, it'd be hard pressed to ask me anything about the business, the future that I haven't at least thought of, right? Mm-hmm. The, the external things that I might be working on at any given time. I've thought through those well, scenarios. So have you been in a situation, I'm sure you have, because it does sound like you've done a lot of personal work, which is great. When you were forced to look inwardly, you had no choice. Like it was like, look in or lose. And where you really had to say, oh, man, you had to look at some, the shadow. You know what I mean? Like you had to do shadow work. When did, you, when did that happen for you? This is actually something I there, there's one moment that comes to mind. And, and this was something I was so excited to write about in the book because it's not something I get to share. It's not something I share from stage. And it needed a long form to kind of unpack. And, and I hope that it might help others. So Charity Water experienced extreme exponential growth. Everything went right for eight years. I mean, it's really the only way to put it. Uh, We grew eight years in a row. There was a three-year period during the recession when, uh, or the the economic downturn, where charitable giving in America was net negative 8%, and we were up 490%. 
So it just felt like we had the tiger by the tail. We were raising millions. Everything was working. The issue was resonating with people. You know, when we stood on stage and said people shouldn't be dying of bad water, everybody agreed with us. Right? Nobody told me to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was, in some ways, we'd found the, the least controversial topic on the planet, right? There's a tenth of the world living with bad water. We want to bring all 660 million people clean water, and, and we will not stop fighting until this happens. Do you want to join us? Right? Nobody said that was a bad idea. Nobody said it was harmful aid or dead aid. We just, we bypassed all the cynics and skeptics when it came to the issue. When it came to the model that we built and, and this idea of, of building the most hyper-transparent charity, of using 100% of public's donations to projects, of uh, trying to build a different, creative, imaginative, inspiring brand that looked more like Apple or Nike or you know, Virgin and not the, the shame and guilt and poverty porn that had preceded us, that was all just working. So we had eight years of... Crushing it, really, and and there were you know there were, there were some small challenges in there, but and then um, in our eighth year, we raised forty five million dollars, and we gave a million people clean water, and that's how we mm. keep score. Keeping score is the amount of people that were able to change uh, dramatically, transform their lives through bringing clean water. So take someone from dirty water to clean water, and that's one. That's one tick. So we did a million of those. Uh, it's 50 Madison Square Gardens full of people. You know, it just felt like this mm. amazing year. You know, it was, like, was 2,500 people every day of the year. And then in our ninth year, we shrunk. Not only did we not grow, not only did we, you know, plateau and kind of, you know, figure out what we were building, we dropped about 30%. A lot of reasons for that. There were a couple big gifts. The market went sideways. Some big donors said, we love you, but we're pausing our giving this year. Our stocks are down. Our portfolios are down. But we went from getting a million people clean water to 800,000 people the next year. And I went into a depression. Mm-hmm. I tried to quit as CEO and begin a CEO search. I called eight board members and said, uh, I hit the ceiling. It's time to bring on a real leader. So self-doubt. I was the person to get us here, but I'm definitely not the person to get us to the next level. And I was going to stay in with the organization. I was going to be chief water boy or, you know, go work on innovation or go do (laughs) some speaking, you know, take some, um, take some, you know, dramatically reduced role and step aside and go bring in a real professional. And it just, it was just getting worse and worse. And as the year was ending, you know, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a futurist. So I can just see things, you know, I'm just out a year, three years, five years, 10 years. And I knew at the end of the first quarter how we were going to end the year and that there was no way, barring a miracle, which we've had before, but we, it was just going to end badly. So I just start to, to, to spiral and this is my fault and I'm letting people down. I'm letting my team down. I'm letting our local partners down. Most importantly, I'm letting down 200,000 people who are not going to get clean water because we, you know, we couldn't even repeat what we did the year before, let alone grow. And all we'd known was growth. And my, my exec team uh, gave me some sound advice in the end of that year and they said, um, you actually do finally look burned out. And that's the thing. For for. Eight years, I mean, ever since day one, people had said, you're going to burn out. You can't go this fast. You can't go this hard. You can't fly this much. You can't speak this much. You can't sleep this little. 
And I would just laugh at them. I mean, this is my life's work. This is my passion. Um, I've been to Ethiopia 30 times in coach. I've been to 69 countries. I mean, this is, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. This isn't how you burn out. I didn't have kids then, you know. And what was fascinating was all the reasons they thought I would burn out were actually wrong. All those external reasons. It was actually that one failure, the one year where we blew it. Um, and, and by blowing it, meaning we didn't raise as much as the year before, which, which caused me to have this existential crisis. So what wound up happening is some friends told me, take, take the month of January off. Nothing happens around here in January. Giving spikes up and then you know goes to the floor and then you try and do it all over again. And they said, um, why don't you take some time with your family uh, and so a, a friend uh, gives me a, a beautiful house in Shasta, California, overlooking the lake. It's like a 10-bedroom retreat house. It's all glass. I go out there with my wife, my one-year-old, uh, her grandparents, and I'm just going to spend a month thinking, praying, going to the local church in Reading, and, you know, and, and figuring out what's next. And I'll, I'll tell you, Ian, we go out there, and I'm expecting this, this beautiful time. It rains the entire month. Actually, it doesn't rain. It hails. <laughs> we were so high up on this mountain. The mountain, the house had its own weather system. So I couldn't see the lake. We were, we were surrounded in fog. Uh, all the, the beautiful beach umbrellas, you know, are knocked into the pool. The house is raining so hard it starts leaking. So I'm running around with buckets. We find out we're pregnant with our second. My wife immediately gets grumpy on day three because she was at least <laughs> going to be drinking good wine if we're trapped in this house in the rain. You know, so now that's gone. And I wind up having kind of the most miserable month uh, that was supposed to be this restoring. All that to say, in that month, I realized a couple of things. First, that way too much of my identity was tied to the numbers. My identity had become inseparable from Charity Waters. Mm-hmm. And the more, when, when Charity Water was going great, I was doing great. And that's all I'd known for eight years. So I'd really only known Scott doing great, Charity Water doing great. When Charity Water didn't do well, uh, I went down with it. Mm-hmm. And I had this conversation with my father where he said, son, uh, I hope I'm not the first person to tell this to you, but all organizations don't go up into the right forever. You know, all businesses, he'd been in business for 30 years. You have good years. You have bad years. There are, there are times of, of plenty. There are lean times. You know, he said, so that year, last year, he said, did you compromise your values in any way? I said, no. He said, did you do anything you're not proud of? I said, no. But dad, we didn't raise as much money. We didn't help as many people. And I think I just realized getting a little bit of perspective um, that just how unhealthy that was, that, that the organization and I were different. And, you know, I was a, I was a husband. I was a father now to, to two kids or the second on the way. And, and, and I don't know if this is an eight thing to do. What I, what I wanted to do was just come home and fix it. And instead of quitting, you know, I had this realization, okay, well, I can't quit in year 10. I mean, that would just be lame. Got to at least finish out the decade. So let me come back. Let me see if I can get the growth curve going again, diagnosis the business, figure out what went wrong and, and solve it. So at least I'm handing off Charity Water in a position of strength, not on the way down. 
And we came back that year, pivoted the organization, went from a one-time donation business that was based on birthdays and fundraising campaigns, moved to subscription, grew again that year. Last year grew 40%. This year, we're up another 40%. And, you know, we're, we just started year 13, and I'm loving it. You know, I've never been happy enough. And, I'm, and again, now I'm on what, what could potentially be another eight-year growth curve. So the real test, I think, will be at that next calamity or that next time when Charity Water really doesn't do well. And I would hope that I would have the, the memory and take those learnings and, and just handle it in a much more mature way. Yeah, man. Well, that's, that's a very eight story. I have an eight daughter and an eight mother. And uh, I have to say that um, one of the things I know to be true is in both of their cases, like my mom was a, a publisher and, and this was back in the 60s and 70s. So women just didn't do that in those days, you know, and that, I mean, not with it, it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't available. My mother like crushed it, you know, to the point that she could do it. Now she traveled probably six months out of the year on the road and uh she would then come home and you know crush it around the clock to make sure we were okay and i just the problem is if you're not very self-aware as an eight then you'll be completely unaware of the price that you're paying for that kind of intensity and that you uh are taxing yourself and a you know, we all attach to the wrong things all the time, right? But you, you all do it with like your your fire never goes out. It's like there's no pause. It's just you don't have a sentence that even has grammar in it to slow it down. It's just constantly going. And the danger is specifically for eight men because culturally speaking, eight women can have a crash and cry, right? You know, it's like however it goes. My mom would do that about once every five years. But you know, it's like they, they'll crash and cry. Eight men tend to just have heart attacks. You know what I mean? They just they just go, 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 go until they have a heart attack. It's like they grab their chest and go, hey, what happened? It's like, well, you just lived eight lifetimes in the last five years. <laughs> That's what happened. Uh, and so they, they I hope you're, you've got some folks around you, I think like most dates you hope would have it, who just say, you have to slow down. And then I'm always asking eights, for example, do you have someone in your life who can tell you no? And then you have to listen to them. I do. And I've gotten a lot better at saying no myself. Um, it's funny, I'm, um, I'm going through a really important hire internally, someone who's working on my team. And that's one of the, I just had this meeting an hour ago. I'm like, I need someone to push back. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I want to say yes. I'm also a people pleaser. You know, I want people to like me. I want them to like the organization. We're doing good work. And I just want to say yes. And I, there's, there's someone who had done a lot for me indirectly that a week ago asked me for an hour of time and I just don't have the hour for this thing. And I Mm -hmm. said, no, and I'm still thinking about it a week later. Yeah. That I felt like I let this person down and there's this loyalty. And you know, I, I, I said, someone else here can talk to that person for you. Someone else can give that two hours because I just don't have two hours. I have a book coming out in two weeks. This, I made the right business decision, but I actually just talked about it again this morning and I felt bad about it. So I really need people to um, either run interference and just make sure that that doesn't even get to me where I'm, I'm taking, you know, I feel like I'm just letting all these people down because I don't have enough to give because the more you give, the more people expect, you know, my, mm. my team will schedule me for nine meetings on the road. 
You know, I just got back from, you know, L.A., Napa, St. Louis, something like five speeches, six podcasts, three meetings in four days. And when you do that, when you wake up at seven and take your, you know, your 730 or eight o'clock breakfast and you finish at midnight, your team's like, well, great. We're just going to keep him busy. Yeah. So, yeah, well, so I, I both recognize the need for, for other people to tell me no and also um, a little more discipline. You know, one of the things that actually gives me life as a storyteller, I love going to the movies. So I'll now actually schedule, don't tell my team, although I'm sure some people will listen to this, I'll schedule a movie in the middle of a work week. Because oh, yeah. I'm not going to do it with kids, but I'll, uh, there's, a, there's another guy here, one of my executives, and we'll just block ourselves out on a Monday from 12 to 3, and we'll go to the IPIC down on Fulton Martin Market. And that's actually really restorative, to sit there, have lunch, drink a beer, you know, watch a movie in the middle of the workday because it's the only time I'm going to get that time to do it. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to leave my kids for that with my travel schedule. Uh, I'm not going to do it on a, a Saturday or a Sunday. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to be there with my wife. So, you know, I've learned these little tricks. Um, I I do that, and I just saw you know Black Panther in IMAX in Indianapolis on a layover. <laughs> there were I was actually there was one other person in the IMAX theater. You know, it was like two fifteen p.m. So I'm trying to at least schedule those, those moments of restoration and rest. Uh, the rest is hard because sometimes I just wake up. I, I'm just ready for the day. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about your new book for a second. Uh, you've got this book, Thirst, coming out, which is a great title. Is there a subtitle for it? Yeah. It's called A Story of Redemption, Compassion, and a Mission to Bring Clean Water to the World. Awesome. All right. So... I'm assuming that the story, for example, about that one month and, you know, up on the on the lake in the fog, which is a great metaphor as a four to listen to. uh, And that's in there. But this is a book that is about your I mean, it sounds part memoir, uh, part reporting uh, on the work that you're that you're doing. And again, I just got the galley of it a couple of weeks ago and I can't I can't wait to jump into it. Uh, But I mean, tell us about the book. Why, so why should anybody read this book? Oh, man. Um, I feel like I wanted to write it for so many reasons. <laughs> and, you know, there's... I really want to share my personal story. I, I know that... So I've been sharing my story over the years. And, and I'll have people come up to me, whether it's at a church or a conference, and say, you know, that gave me such hope uh, around the personal story. You know, that, mm. that I thought my past defined me. I thought I would never be able to get that monkey off my back, that it was too late to change. And boy, you are so much worse than I am. <laughs> and, 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 and if you could walk away from that, like, like if you could actually find a way to redeem all of that crap that you did for 10 years and turn that into good, you know, turn that into a, a movement of clean water, maybe there's hope for me. Uh, I've had parents, you know, who's, who have prodigal kids, you know, come up to me like with tears in their eyes afterwards saying, we really almost had given up hope on our child. But, you know, looking at you standing up in front of a stage, you know, with, with a wife and kids and, you know, walking away from smoking and drinking and gambling and drugs and, and all that stuff like that gives us hope. So, so there's, you know, I'm pretty honest about um, both how dark it really was and, and that came very natural for me. I mean, that was the only way to be. There are guns in the book. There's, you know, there's just, there's pretty hardcore um, descent into, into hell. Uh, and, and, I, and I was, what I want people to take from that is, I just 
was chasing what a lot of people are chasing. I was just chasing sex and money and status and the party around the world and what that actually did to me. You know, it left me morally bankrupt. It, it left me spiritually bankrupt. Um, the more I got, the, the more I rotted inside. And I, I just, I know that that, exp- I, I just wanted to go more honest with that. You know, I can, I can share it in five or 10 minutes in a, in a dinner conversation, but in this forum, I wanted to, to really unpack that. I think, you know, when it comes to the work, what's been so fun for me in this book is to share the stories of the community. You know, Charity Water is not our story. Um, you've got a guy, Don Miller, you know, down in Nashville who just articulates this so well. You know, I really look at our, our role or my role as the guide We've been able to connect a million people who want to make the world a better place. They, they want to be moved to greater generosity and compassion. They want to trust. They want to make an impact. And, and we have given them a way to actually do that and to impact you know, 8.4 million people's lives with clean water in 26 countries and, and now solve, what, 178th of the global problem. And those stories are, they're such a joy for me to tell. And, you know, when people have been telling me that they're weeping reading the book and that they're laughing, like, that's not, you know, it moves from my story, but it really becomes the story of so many people, of six-year-old kids giving up their birthdays, of 89-year-olds, you know, who are, who are making, you know, this people giving out of their pension, making great sacrifices. Um, that, that's just been a real joy. And, you know, the book ends, it's funny, I was just thinking of this, the, the statement again, not being very reflective, but having to when I know that I'm going to do Ian Cron. Uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 the way I end the book is by embracing this statement, which is really my favorite quote. And I've come across a lot of quotes in obviously a decade as you do. Um, someone sent this to me more than 10 years ago. They were passing a bodega and they snapped a photo, you know, written on one of those little kind of chalkboards. Mm-hmm. And it was from an ancient rabbinic text. And the quote was, do not be afraid of work that has no end. Do not Mm. be afraid of work that has no end. And I have finally embraced that about my life, my life's mission, the work of Charity Water. Uh, I actually believe we will solve the water crisis, um, all of us together. We will see a day on earth when nobody is drinking bad water simply because of where they're born. But the actual work is so much bigger than that. The work is, is a labor of unselfishness. It's a labor of love, of moving people um, you know, from selfishness and, and material possessions and the accumulation of more to focus on others. That'll never end. So when we solve the water crisis, we're not going to drop the mic and go become millionaires, you know, go work right. at a bank. We're going to take everything we've learned. We're going to take our community, hopefully of tens of millions of generous people, and say, what else could we do? Shelter, right? Hunger. And nobody should be going yep. to bed hungry. Nobody shouldn't have a roof over their head. You know, nobody should not have access to health care. So that, that idea used to really scare me, but now I've just embraced it. I mean, it's almost like that, you know, I have this picture of the Schindler's List moment at the end of the film when, you know, the Liam Neeson character, Oscar Schindler, just regrets not doing more. But in that pursuit, he actually did so much. And, you know, maybe, you know, we're eight and a half million people in, you know, maybe if I can continue that passion and intensity and not burn out and find ways to, uh, to rest, you know, to stay restored in the interim, you know, maybe I get to look back and we've raised tens of billions. We've helped 100 million people get water or 200 million people get water. 
and it'll never be enough. You know, I'm sure, you know, on my deathbed, it'll be like, well, I, I wish we had a better year that, that year. You know, I wish yep. we hadn't had year nine or year 17 or year 25, and I wish we'd been smarter. Wow. Man, I hope everybody just heard that passion and all that intensity. And I love, by the way, that you're, the book is called Thirst, because it sounds to me like you uh, are not only talking about the issues of clean water for people around the world, but it also sounds like you are talking about your own thirst, your own thirst yeah. for life and having having looked for it in places that were really uh, self-defeating, self-destructive, and maybe now finding that your thirst is being slaked because it's your attention is being directed in the right way. Yeah, I mean, Ian, I was throwing a party. I was throwing parties for 10 years, and I was inviting people. There's just... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Strengths Finder, and everybody mm-hmm. here at Charity Water has their Strengths Finder wheel up over their desk. And um, one of mine, uh, belief is one of mine, activators, one of mine, ideation, um, in, includer is one of mine. And I've mm. been wanting to include people in something my whole life. I, I was I was inviting them to come to the velvet rope, right? To bow to the doorman to come inside the club and spend $1,000 on a bottle of champagne or $20 mm-hmm. on a vodka and soda. And if they got past the doorman, if they came in with all the beautiful people and the right DJ and the right celebrities, then their life had meaning. So I invited them for 10 years and I probably got you know, close to a million people drunk working at 40 clubs. I just cha- I'm still inviting people. I'm still promoting. I'm still a promoter. I just changed... 180 degrees what I was inviting people to the table changed you know now it's a table of generosity and compassion and care for others and and selfless giving and but but I'm still inviting people I've now invited a million people not to get drunk but to come and help us end what I believe one of the most pressing global issues and hopefully find a little bit of redemption in the process hopefully find you know a little bit more joy and freedom as they give of themselves and as they can Mm. see their impact. So it's been really fun to think about doing the same thing. I mean, really been doing the same thing for 20 years, promoting, inviting people, throwing parties. You know, now I'm throwing parties at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which are raising $4.6 million in a few hours so that people can get clean water in 460 villages. You know, I never threw a $4.6 million party before. It's funny. One of my, my, my best friends, um, you know, said, you know, while you were, while at the time you felt like you were such a successful nightclub promoter and, you know, a good night for us would be to, to sell $50,000 of alcohol and walk home with, I don't know, five or 10 grand in our pocket. He's like, now you're doing $5 million galas. And, and all that money is, is being distributed to people. So I don't know. I think that's been, that's been so fun for me and I would hope that as people read the book and, and, and could find that in their own story how is this thing that I actually feel like uh, w- was the um, the energy in the wrong direction how could I not only change direction and use that for good but actually redeem everything I learned in the past so that those aren't wasted years one of my favorite verses is a you know, a verse from Joel where you know, the writer says, I'll restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten and then lists all these worms that I've never heard of before. And I, I really felt like that was my life. It was this wasteland. There was nothing living at the bottom of it all. 
And, you know, in a moment, there was the grace to come home. It's almost like it bloomed overnight. You know, like the rains came and the wasteland in such a short period of time became this fertile ground. And without regret, without, you know, I wasn't beating myself up about, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, you know, six years ago in the club or three years ago. It's just like the, 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 um, the slate was wiped clean. You know, I probably most identify with the story of the prodigal son. I, I felt like that when I came home both to God and when I came home to my family, it was just, okay, do over. That's a beautiful I mean, I want to kind of close here because I think do-over is just a great phrase for people to hold on to because I think the story is so inspiring because I think a lot of people, um, and this is sad to say, but as a therapist, as a priest, I, I see it all the time and people aren't aware of it until you say it to them, which is this, I meet people all the time who have already given up on themselves. And they don't even know it. They can feel mm-hmm. it. They, you can see it in the way their body moves. You can see it in the way that they've resigned their lives. Like, I lost these 20 years. Or I, mm-hmm. you know, I see this in AA rooms all the time. You know, it's like this kind of, you know, I, I lost the best years of my life. It's like, dude, you know, these are the best years of your life. If you have three years left, you have all the time you need mm-hmm to do the right thing, like to do the next right thing and, and, you know, start to look forward and, and see, you know, it's like, um, you know, that, uh, um, that this idea that, you know, with God, you know, there's this quality of there's the, um, we live in a multi-chance universe. Mm-hmm. Our, our world, uh, we live in a multi-chance life. And so there's never a moment when there's not another chance. And I love the fact that you, you've you sort of raised that idea to the surface for people. And I want to encourage people to go buy the book Thirst. I can't wait to read it. But knowing you and knowing the work, I know this book is fantastic. I know that – what's the day it drops on the street again? When is it published? Uh, October 2nd. And I, I, okay. I didn't take the advance or any of the proceeds, so it all goes to the organization. So I won't, I won't make a penny off it. And I, hope well, it helps, I hope it helps people. Well, that's fantastic. I, I admire you for that. Um, I just want to encourage people to go get Scott's new book, Thirst. It drops October 2nd. And, uh, you, you, know, you know, y'all need to do it for no other reason but to support Charity Water. You can go to their site. I encourage you to just participate in this remarkable community's work in any way that you can, even, you know, whether it's financially or by word of mouth or both. I mean, just this is really, really, really important work. And I just, I can't commend what Charity Water's doing enough. And Scott, I just, I want to thank you so much for bringing, I mean, you just brought such great energy today. I've got another interview right after this with somebody, and you have just brought me up onto the pitch of the wave, man. I'm up in the foam. <laughs> and I, I, I just, I so appreciate it. You're an inspiring, uh, fine human being who has mm. an eight, who has clearly done some work and seems thirsty to do more. And that just brings me hope and joy. Thanks, Ian. That's so kind. Well, I hope we see each other again soon. If you're in Nashville soon, I, I, I would be so honored if you gave me a shout. And uh, I wish you and Charity Water all the best and all the best on the release of this new book, Thirst. Thanks, man. God bless you. Okay, you too.
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.